Hey, church, good morning. I think every uh, announcement we do should have Mount Mansfield in the background. What do you think? I mean, that is just awesome. Uh, ushers, let's take the offering. My name's Matt, in case you don't know me. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we're going to take the offering this morning. If you've come, it's your first time visiting. You've only been here a couple times. You're not prepared to give. Please don't worry about it. We're not asking you to buy your seat at church or anything like that. This is just a way for us as a church family to make ministry happen and to partner together and worship together. So uh, thanks for giving uh, however you're doing that. And again, Again, if you're not ready to give, relax. It's all good. Uh, Let's pray for the offering. God, thanks for your provision. Thanks for the opportunities before us with things like corn roast. And as we head back into a school year, God, we look forward to the ways you're going to use us and our church uh, together to um, do the work of your gospel. So we give this morning with joy and gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, Happy Labor Day weekend. I hope you are blessed with a day off tomorrow. I hope you've enjoyed this almost summer weather that we've had the last couple days. It's like, it's like almost feels like summer again. And uh, I'm looking forward to this week. Uh, And we're going to be praying this week for what people? That Saturday corn roast that will be good weather. We can't have another canceled event. I know Scott, Pastor Scott's optimism has been abundant. So we're going to stand with him in that optimism and hope and pray for a good day on Saturday. Good weather for us to gather, eat some corn and have some fun and light a big fire, of course. And uh, if you haven't already, make sure you sign up with Hannah out in the lobby. We have a lot of volunteer slots still to, spill, uh, still to fill to make this event happen. So go there, sign up. A lot of ways you can serve and uh, we appreciate you doing that. Um, I think it's fitting that we celebrate Labor Day, this holiday that celebrates working and workers and our labor force. I think it's fitting that we celebrate this holiday with a day off, right? The best way to celebrate working is by not, I think. So I hope, uh, I hope you have, uh, make good use of your weekend. But I do know from experience, and many of you do too, that Labor Day doesn't necessarily mean a day off for all of us. You work in retail, customer service, hospitality, other things got to get done. Um, not all of us have the luxury of Labor Day being a day off. But I think it's good. I think it's good to have a time to celebrate workers and working and our labor force. You know, the world is built by workers, by us who work. For 129 years, America has been celebrating Labor Day. It was made a national holiday signed in by Congress on June 28, 1894. So for 129 years. But for over a decade prior to that day in 1894, individual states had been celebrating Labor Day on their own. The first of which was New York State in 1882 on the first Saturday of September, September 5th, 1882. The first Labor Day celebration was held in New York City. It was, um, it was organized by the Central Labor Union and the Knights of Labor as a way to celebrate uh, the labor and trade movements of the 19th century and the contributions of the workforce to the American economy and its prosperity and its growth over that, uh, over that century. So 1882, New York City. 1887, five more states were celebrating Labor Day, kind of independent of each other there on the first Saturday of September. And then by the time uh, it became a national holiday in 1894, 30 states were celebrating Labor Day and the contributions of their laborers and unions. But for years following, almost uh, 30 plus years following when it became a national holiday, Uh, 
Labor Day and this day off only applied to federal workers. Go figure. So these labor unions were encouraging their, uh, their people to strike on the first Monday of September every year to make sure that they got to celebrate and have this day off as well with their families and, and have a day of rest. Since its first observance in New York City, Labor Day has celebrated workers with parades and picnics and speeches and rallies and days off to affirm and to rally our workers, especially those that sometimes fly under the radar, aren't appreciated so much, and maybe don't earn the same paycheck as their white-collar neighbors do. Now, I admit for myself, on Labor Day, um, I don't often think of workers and laborers. That's just me. I don't often do it. It's a day for me and I've put my feet up. My kids are off from school, so I got to entertain them all day. I got to get the grill going, maybe see friends. And I try to keep as a day off work as far from my mind as possible. Okay. And I'm sure many of you are in the same boat, but I think for myself, I know it's true. And I think for many of us, we take work for granted. We tolerate work maybe as a means to an end or a necessary evil even to provide stability and opportunity for our families or to afford leisure activities, right? We work to be able to afford escaping from work, right? Does that make sense? We got to pay bills, so we got to work and we take work for granted. I know I have traditionally taken work very much for granted. When I was younger, working different retail jobs, things, I would jump at the chance to uh, get out of a shift or go home early, even if I needed the money. I was ready to get out of there as soon as possible. Now, for a number of reasons, my generation, we uh, have tend to see work more as a calling and trying to find a vocation to earn money with following our passions and things we're interested in. But I know for many of you in the generations above me, work is viewed a little differently. Generally seen work and entered the workforce out of personal and economic necessity. It is what it is, right? You gotta, rent is due, we gotta pay bills, we gotta, we gotta work, we gotta build the economy. Now, my dad, he's an optical engineer. I don't think when he was starting college and getting into his career that he was necessarily passionate about optical engineering, but rather it was a growing field and there was opportunities, so there he goes into that field. And I also know many of us are not able to work for one reason or another, disability or injury, or you've retired, or a number of other reasons. You're not able to work. And I've heard many people in that situation say things to me like, I wish I could go to work. Wish I could earn my own way or contribute or, or have something to do. Work often gets taken for granted. Many of us, I think, maybe even most of us, view work as a means to an end, a necessary evil, something we have to do in order to do the things we want to do. I wonder if we could shift our perspective about work. What if we could see work as not something to endure, but as something that was actually life-giving and life-affirming? What if we saw our work as what it means, part of what it means to be fully human and fully alive? Because the truth is, God created you to work. Whatever you do, retail, finance, you're a plumber, a machinist, pilot, musician, teacher, CEO, project manager, your work 
is sacred. Your work is blessed. I'd like to turn to Genesis chapter 2 as we start out this morning. We'll read a few verses here. We're going to start in verse 5. Now, God's created everything, all the world, the universe, and everything in it. And then we come to Genesis 2, and uh, here's what it says. It says, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the garden, trees that were pleasing to the eye, good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll jump down a few verses. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. It was not long after God created the first human being and put him in the garden that he said, get to work. This place is yours. Take care of it. Tend it. Work it. Yeah, God made the trees grow and the trees produce fruit and all that, but some needed, someone needed to maintain it, to cultivate it, to make it healthy and good. So he put the man there to do that. Friends, that's farming. That is work. God did not create that first man and say, here, relax, put your feet up. Here's a little umbrella for your drink. Enjoy the sunshine. He didn't say that. God, I wish you would have, but he didn't. No, he put the man in the garden for his food and for his pleasure. He was given the task of work. You know, work is not a result of the fall of man or of sin. Or it is actually a God-given directive that God gave us patterned after himself. Back in Genesis chapter one, it says that God created man and woman in his own image. And part of being in the image of God, uh, part of that image is what theologians call the functional image, which basically means man functions like God functions. He does the things that God does. He's moral, we're moral. He's creative, we're creative. He works, we work. We're patterned after God himself. Genesis 2 opens with these words. It says, thus the heavens and earth were completed in all their vast array. So God created everything, right? He finished. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating he had done. Two verses, three times it says God works. It talks about the work God did. He created humans in his image. He works, we work. We're patterned after God in that way. To work is part of our very being. And the first thing God says to the man is that he is to work, take care of the garden. Work is not something we're just supposed to endure. It's not a necessary evil of life. It's an essential part of what it means to be human. Even if you hate working, 
Even if you hate your job, I know I'd much rather not have to work, but work is an essential part of our God-created humanity. I think there's two extremes to this, though, that we live in. The first is sort of this human ambition thing, right? I think this is where it comes from. It's because we are created to work. So many of us feel this, this overdrive to work and achieve and to set goals that are hard to reach and to work long hours and to go, go, go and do, do, do. Some of us are wired that way. Not everyone wants to chill all the time. Some people seem to almost have an addiction to working. It's like they can't, there's something in them that can't get enough and has to go and go. Do you know people like this? I know I know people like this. I had a friend in college, a friend in college who was like this. He had a full class load. He took a, a full, full slate, uh, spring, summer, fall, winter. He took a full slate. But he was always working multiple jobs to earn income as well during our college years. And uh, I'd catch CJ on his laptop. This was back 15 years ago when Craigslist was a thing, right? You remember Craigslist? So he would scour Craigslist or he'd cold call uh, scrap metal yards all around the state. And he was trying to find industrial, uh, the thing he focused on was industrial meat slicers. You know, those big metal meat slicers you see at like Hannaford. So he'd call and look on Craigslist and scrap metal yards to see if there were any discarded, broken, or dirty uh, meat slicers. And I'm t- I mean, this guy would drive... One time he drove six hours to get one. Six hours there, six hours back. And he'd bring it home, he'd fix it up, he'd clean it up, he'd post it back on the internet and sell these things for like thousands of dollars. And he just did this. And he had three or four other jobs. He had all his class load. He did it all on top of school. And wouldn't you know it, now uh, CJ, he's a financial advisor. He's living in New York City. He's doing pretty good for himself. But he was wired that way just to go and do and more. And I think it's because we're made to work and that drive comes from that createdness in being in God's image. But not all of us feel that sort of drive to work. Some of us feel driven the other way, to work as little as possible. Man, I feel that drive, to work as little as possible. I mean, it's just, it's the dream. And for many of us, work is, it's a, it's a dirty word. It's a four-letter word, Right? We say it with disdain. I have to go to work today. Uh, I have to work. Work means hard. Work means something I don't want to do. It's just something I have to do. How many songs have been written about how terrible work is? Right? I bet you can think of some. I've got a few examples for you. Okay? Now, I'm not going to sing them. I leave the singing to Pastor Scott when he's up here. Okay? I'm not, for your sake and for mine, I'm not going to sing any of this. But here we go. Here's a few examples. Um, Todd Rundgren's song, Bang the Drum All Day. You know this one? You know this. You know this one. All right? It says, I don't want to work. I just want to bang on the drum all day. Every day when I get home from work, I feel so frustrated. The boss is a jerk. And I get my sticks and go out to the shed, and I pound on that drum like it was my boss's head. <laughs> I would never say that about my boss. Uh, Scott, you're a great boss. All right. Uh, The Smiths, one of my dad's favorite bands. I like The Smiths too. The Smiths, frankly, Mr. Shankly. She goes, frankly, Mr. Shankly, this position I've held, it pays my way and it corrodes my soul. I want to leave. You will not miss me. I want to go down in musical history. Uh, Last example is Working for a Living by Huey Lewis in the News. Yeah, I guess some of you know that one, yeah. Some days won't ever, or won't end ever, and some days pass on by. 
I'll be working here forever, at least until I die. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. I'm supposed to get a raise week. You know damn well I won't. You can go on Spotify and you can find these things with playlists people have made that are titled things like songs to quit your job to or I hate my job playlist, right? And there's, uh, you can find these things. Um, for some of us, work, <laughs> work is just the worst. It's the last thing we want to be doing. For some of us, work becomes who we are and what is most important and it's identity and a pride and a go and a reason to think of ourselves as better and more you know, successful than others. Both of those things, those of those extremes and perspectives, I think, are broken. Pastor and author Doug Fields, he says, busyness is usually a sign of brokenness. I would also add, laziness is usually a sign of brokenness. Neither is right, neither is good, neither is balanced. Neither perspective is what God wants for us. He wants your work to be meaningful, life-giving, and a positive contribution to the world without it becoming everything to you. Most of us live in the tension between these two extremes. When it comes to work, we're, we're off balance in some way. Either we're overdriven or we're underdriven. And like most things, that's a result of Adam and Eve eating the fruit of the tree they weren't supposed to, and sin coming and reaching deep into our being and affecting everything. And that includes how we view and approach work. Even though we were created for it, sin has broken how we think about work. If you go to Genesis 3, the serpent tempts Eve with this fruit Eve eats it, she gives it to Adam, he eats it, and then God finds out, go figure, surprise, and there are consequences. He comes and he looks at the serpent and he says, here's your consequences. He looks at the woman and says, here's consequences, and he looks at the man and he says this to him. Genesis 3, 17, to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife, now we're not blaming the wives for anything, okay? He says, because you listened to your wife and and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, You must not eat from it. Here it comes. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam's work was supposed to be that cultivating and farming. Sin broke it. Sin affected it. Our sense of purpose and joy in work is broken. Yes, we are to tend the garden. We are to work it. But now the garden is full of thorns and thistles. The dirt is hard and dry. Work now comes with sweat and blood and hardship and toil. I mean, think about your workplaces. Is there drama in the office? Are people talking behind each other's backs? Are there difficult customers you have to deal with? Is your boss too demanding or maybe two hands off and you just don't know what the heck is going on and what to do? Did the flooding this year affect your farm's yield or, or um, shut down your retail space? 
for a while? Is that project you've been working on, the timeline just keeps getting pushed back because it's just one thing after another after another that is just frustrating and out of your control. Work is not easy. Whether your job is out in the elements or in an air-conditioned office building or now even in your home, work is not easy. Work is hard, yes, by nature, but also because sin affects our working environments and how we view and approach our work. Thorns and thistles by the sweat of your brow. So we're out of balance. Many of us, that wiring we have being created to work, it's affected by sin. It's, it's either overdriven or underdriven, both of which are off balance and, and push us towards unhealthy habits and views about our working environments and ourselves as workers. Sin broke it. But like anything that sin broke, there's good news. Jesus redeems it. If you turn to the Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you read the story of Jesus, you'll find that he speaks about and affirms work. Many of his illustrations, parables, stories talk about everyday work and workers. He talks about farmers and shepherds, day laborers and vineyard managers and tax collectors, everyday jobs. He affirms work in how he talks about the gospel and stories that he tells. In fact, Jesus himself was likely a worker. He was probably a carpenter working alongside his father Joseph when he was a young boy. Mark 6.3 as Jesus is doing his thing and his you know, neighbors notice, they go, isn't that the carpenter? They call him the carpenter in Mark 6.3. Jesus probably worked. And when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, he defeated sin and its effects. And while we still live in a world deeply affected by sin, when we follow Jesus, we have the ability to get past and live outside of those effects and the bondage to sin and the damage it does. So in other words, Jesus gives us a new way. We have to choose that way, though. And allow me to pull on this thread for a moment. Um, in the 15th century, Martin Luther, John Calvin, there was this big reformation, okay? It's called the Reformation. Um, the Catholic Church of the day was very mediated. To get talk to God, you had to go through the priest. So part of what the reformers did was say, actually, no, we all have access to God. And this concept was called the priesthood of all believers. We all have access to God, not just the priests, okay? Whenever God has gathered his people in the, in the scriptures, he calls his people priests, a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests. He says it of Israel in the Old Testament, and he says it about the church in the New Testament. For example, here's 1 Peter 2.9, where Peter's talking to the church. He said, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. So through Jesus, we are made into a kingdom of priests, priesthood of all believers. We all have access to God. We don't all have the job of priest, right? Or pastor, that's not all of our work, but we all have the same access, ability, and relationship with God. None of us is more special than the other. Author Gene Weiss, he says this in his book, God at Work. He says, the priesthood of all believers 
did not make everyone into church workers. Rather, it turned every kind of work into a sacred calling. Your work is sacred. That's what that means. Your work matters. Whatever it is you do by virtue of how God created you and the relationship you have with him, you living out that created nature, your work matters. You working matters. There's no hierarchy of work. There's no, in God's eyes, there's no profession or job that's more important. Me being a pastor is no more special than what it is you do. In your vocation, you are a chosen person, a royal priest. Martin Luther King Jr., he, he said it this way. He said, no work is insignificant. All labor that uplifts humanity has dignity and importance and should be undertaken with painstaking excellence. Jesus redeemed work. And maybe more profoundly, he redeemed how we can view and approach our work, not as something of a burden, something we have to endure, a necessary evil. It's not something to escape. But through Jesus, work becomes a sacred calling, a means for living out our created nature and helping the world around us, however that looks. And I think when we can see and understand that Jesus redeems how we view and approach work, I think we would each find a greater fulfillment in what we do, a greater balance of rest and work, because we all need rest, and a greater sense of the mission that God has called us to in our particular vocation and workplaces. You know, time is moving forward. It's moving in a specific direction. We read in scripture the return of Jesus. And from the time Jesus rose from the dead until now, God has been moving people forward with a sense of mission, which includes our work and our workplaces. And through redeeming us and how we view these things, Christians, we are always at work to accomplish the mission of God and whatever that is that we do and have been called to. I want to highlight two people from the book of Acts. Two people that I think had a redeemed view, not only of their work, but of the fruits of their work and how they were able to fulfill God's mission through work and working. Number one is the Apostle Paul. Now, the Apostle Paul uh, was a missionary, the first real great missionary. He traveled the whole Roman Empire uh, preaching the gospel, planting churches, and raising up leaders to lead those churches. That's what Paul did. But Paul also had a regular job. In Acts chapter 18 we are told that Paul made tents. He was a tent maker. Maybe you've heard this term tent making before. This is where this term comes from. Paul traveled uh, city to city, but he had a regular job. When he traveled to the city of Corinth in Acts 18 to do the mission that he was on of preaching the gospel, of starting churches and all that, uh, he came across a couple named Priscilla and Aquila who also made tents. And it says that he stayed with them and he worked with them there in the city. And every Sabbath, he would go to the synagogue and talk about Jesus with the Jewish population there. Paul used his work to fund his mission. A couple chapters later in Acts 20, as Paul leaves Ephesus, he has some parting words for the people there and he says, 
you yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. These hands of his earned his own money. I don't think Paul's passion was making tents. I think his passion was Jesus, the mission. But his work of producing and working to make tents allowed him to earn an income and then preach and do his ministry faithfully without being seen as someone who is just in it for the money, the collection at the end of the, the, end of the sermon. And it fueled his mission. The second person I want to mention from the book of Acts is a woman named Lydia. Now, Lydia is only briefly mentioned in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas, they're traveling around. They come to the city of Philippi and they meet Lydia along with some other women. And they talk about Jesus and she believes. We're told in Acts 16 that Lydia was a dealer in purple cloth. Now, purple was a very expensive um, dye for clothing. It was very rare. It was called Tyrian purple. And this, this uh, purple dye was so expensive and rare because in order to get this dye, that you had to harvest a number of a specific sea snail and grind down its shell until the dye extracted from it, and then you could use it to dye clothing and other things. And it says she was a dealer in purple cloth. We don't know if she harvested the dye, ground up the snails, or brokered deals between people trying to sell the clothing and wanting to buy the clothing. Either way, she works. She has a job. And we're also told in Acts 16 that Lydia is a homeowner, which would not have been common for women in the ancient world. But she's doing well for herself. She's independent. She's working. She's able to afford and maintain a home. So she hears the gospel from Paul. She believes. And then we learn later in Acts 16, she used her home as a meeting place for people to come together in the city of Philippi to meet together, to worship God, and to hear the gospel. Both Paul and Lydia saw their work, I believe, as a fuel for the mission. Paul lived off his income as a tent maker and was able to preach the gospel with integrity. Lydia used the home she was able to afford and maintain because of her work as a place for the gospel to be heard and people to meet together. And without work, neither of those things would have happened. And without a redeemed view of what their work meant and the opportunities it provided, I don't think those things would have happened the way they did. For all of us, work is an opportunity. Our income, our assets, the things that we own, our homes and our spaces that we can afford because of the fruit of our work, the money we earn, can be used in different and creative ways for God's mission to happen. I know some of you are faithful givers. Many of you are. You give regularly as we gather together, but then when certain things come along throughout the year, you go above and beyond to make those things happen. I'm thinking of things like Night to Shine that we do every February. You know, we fund that all through your generous giving. You guys make that happen. And that's not a small price tag, but you go above and beyond to see ministry happen and the mission to happen. Some of you open your homes to host small groups or Bible studies. You know, we have the crew from Jars here this week that's gonna be with us for corn roast. There's a good sized crew and many of you are hosting them in there in your homes, in your spare bedrooms. You make ministry happen with the fruits of your work, the fruits of your labor. For many of us, the bills are tight. The rent is always due. 
And the thought of giving extra, you know, the beads of sweat start to, and the heart gets a little faster. And you feel hot. I'm with you in that. How can I afford to buy and cook food for someone else or when I can barely get by for myself? But I just encourage you, there are different and creative ways to think about this. And what's more, for all of us who are in the workforce and working, our workplaces are a place for mission to happen as well. Many of us are in environments and in contact with people, relationships that desperately need Jesus. Now, I'm not telling you to violate any of your employee, you know, guidelines and contracts, right? Talking about these things in the workplace. A lot of employers don't want you to talk about religion, politics, whatever. I'm not telling you to violate your conscience or violate what your employers tell you to do. But I am going to encourage you to live in such a way and work in such a way, faithful and genuine, that doors can open for you to have those sorts of conversations. So let me just offer four ways Four ways this morning that you can live and work in that way that doors will open without feeling of violating any workplace guidelines, things like that. Just four, four simple ways. The first one is do good work. Work well. Do quality work. Do the thing you do the best that you can do it. Give your best effort. Give your best attitude. And produce the best results that you're able Your work ethic is more important than you know. People notice. People want to work with and be around those who work well and do their work well. And in that, remember that you're not just trying to please your boss or your customer. You're trying to please the big boss as well. Here's what Paul says in Colossians 3. He says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. You know, when I was an undergrad student, I worked as a janitor on campus for a few years. And one year, I had trash duty. Me and my friend Tyler, we lived together. We had trash duty together. We worked the same shift. We worked maybe three days a week. I can't exactly remember. And so what we would do is we had a big pickup truck. We would drive around campus, and we'd go to all the dorms, all the academic buildings, take out all the garbages, refresh the bags, you know, go throw them in the dumpster and the recycling and all that. Um, Empty all the cans around campus. And um, so we didn't get paid hourly for this trash job. We got paid uh, by the day. So we got a flat rate, whether it took us two hours to do the whole thing or six hours to do the whole thing. So you know what Tyler and I did? Man, did we work fast. We worked fast. We worked sloppy. We were home quick, getting the same paycheck if we'd been there all day. And we especially tried to work fast on rainy days or on snowy days, on cloudy days, on sunny days on Tuesdays, you know. So uh, we would often skip buildings thinking, oh, we'll get it next time, right? We'll skip this one today, we'll get that one, we'll skip that one tomorrow. At the end of that uh, year, we had a, you know, the whole crew got together for kind of an end of year. Goodbye, thanks for doing this. And um, we weren't the only trash crew. There's another trash crew that worked the days we didn't work. And man, did they rat us out. These jerks were always leaving trash. We had to do this and that. And that work ethic that we worked with reflected poorly on us as people. We were seen as disrespectful to them and lazy, not people who were worth trusting with a job. So I encourage you, work well. And you will be seen as a person with integrity and worthy of respect. 
And people are drawn to that. Work poorly and, yeah, you'll be seen in a different light. When you show up at your job, whether you're, uh, whatever you're doing, remember that you're also there for the glory of God. God wants you to be honored, or God wants to be honored in what you do and how you do it. So that's the first one, work well. Second thing I want to encourage you with this morning is to stay out of the office gossip. I shouldn't have to explain this one too much. Stay out of the office gossip. It's really tempting. (laughs) Man, some of that gossip is juicy. And when you find out someone else has the same complaint about that person you do, whoo, you get spinning. But don't gossip. Don't chalk trash about your coworkers behind their backs or your boss or anyone. You're not as slick as you think you are. Words have a way of getting back around to the person you're talking about. And honestly, whining and gossiping and all that stuff, it doesn't reflect well on you and your attitude either. So treat people with the kindness and respect they deserve, even if they don't live up to your standard or work as well as you hope or they bother you. And if you have a problem, just go talk to that person. Go settle it yourself. Man, it makes such a difference to them, to you, and to your work culture to just go and handle those problems one-on-one. They'll appreciate it. Even if it's a hard conversation, you'll appreciate it and everyone will appreciate it. And I'd just say too, if you are that kind of person who talks around and gossips, why would anyone want to tell you anything personal or come to you for help thinking and knowing, ah, it's going to come back around in some way. So don't do it. Stay out of the office gossip. Third thing, seems simple. Third thing, get to know your coworkers. Get to know them. Put yourself in positions where you're spending time with them, building relationships. Everyone's eating in the lunchroom. Go sit in the lunchroom and eat with them that day. They're getting together after work, going to get a beer. Go with them. You can get apple juice. That's fine, but go. Or go grab coffee before work. Build those friendships. You know, we've been talking about it all summer with our seven-step sermon series, if you've been here. Friendships of integrity. Real, genuine friendships with the people you're in touch with. Put yourself in position for that to happen. Being a friend is so important. I can't, it seems so simple, but I can't state it enough. People need friends. There's a lot of research coming out recently. You know, we live in this digital age where face-to-face is becoming more and more rare. Some interesting research has been coming out that I've, I've read over the past couple weeks. I read a recent poll that uh, the data showed that most people over age 55, most people have four or fewer friends. In my generation, I'm a millennial, okay? I'm a millennial, it's okay. My generation, somewhere between 22 and 27% of millennials view themselves in, uh, as having no friends. Zero friends, they've said. Between 20, over one in four people. They're unbelievably lonely. And um, all the effects of COVID, like the isolation, the anxiety, all that stuff is still like, we're still finding out about what that is, especially with Gen Z who's coming up into the workforce now. The isolation, the anxiety, all those things. It sounds so simple, but just be nice to your coworkers. Be a good friend. Don't dismiss the power of being a friend. In and of itself, it's important, but also being a friend opens the door for the gospel. And I'm not saying being shady, just being someone's friend for, you know, to get in there, but being a friend opens the door. People can ask those questions. Hey, why are you so patient with that other coworker who's just terrible? 
Or uh, what do you do on your weekends? Or why, are you, <laughs> why does nothing seem to bother you? And you can start to have those conversations. Well, let me tell you about Jesus and what he's done in my life. That opens the door. Being a friend opens the door. There's power in friendship for you, for them, for the gospel. That's the third thing. And the last thing I just want to encourage you with is make sure you pray. Make sure you pray. God's the one who's going to do the work anyway. He's going to do it through you. And you can put yourself in those right positions and do the right things, but God's the one who's going to make it happen. So make sure you pray that you are tuned into God's voice, to his will, to his purpose, that you start to be able to see things with his eyes and you will see the opportunities that he's provided for you. It'll open in front of you. Put yourself in those good positions through hard work, staying out of gossip, being a good friend to your coworkers, and make sure you pray so you can see how and when those opportunities come around. I want to just give you this quote from Augustine, who was a fourth century theologian and teacher. He said, pray as though everything depended on God. Work as though everything depended on you. Work is good. It's good for you. You were created by God to work. You have skills. You have a purpose given by God, achieved through hard work and training. Work is a sacred task, even if it doesn't feel that way. It's a task we've all been called to in one way or another. I want to hit you with one more quote from Dostoevsky who, uh, who said this, and I find, it, <laughs> I find it telling. He said, deprived of meaningful work, men and women lose their reason for existence. They go stark raving mad. Now, that's a little extreme, but I think, I think there's something there. Because we've been created to work, God has given us the ability and the call to tend the garden, to work in this world. Whatever that work looks like for you, you're a chosen person and a royal priest. There's something in us that needs to work. Work is good for us. It's, work is good for the world too. Whether you're creating something or serving something, managing something, fixing something, your work contributes to the world. People need you to do what you do. The economy needs you to do what you do. It's essential. Work is also good for the gospel. It creates opportunities for you to fulfill God's mission for your life and for the world, whether it's your earnings and your assets, the fruit of your work, or by living on mission in your workplace, or both those things. By keeping your eye out for the people that you can build those friendships with, for the joy of friendship, but to see where God leads that and the opportunities that come. For opening your home, inviting people in to cook for them, to care for them, to share together and pray together. God will use your work to do his work in you and through you to the people that you are in relationship with. Your work matters. You working matters. So let's take the opportunity this long weekend, wherever we are, whatever burger we're eating or if we're at work doing our thing, take the opportunity this weekend to to start to make that perspective shift. 
That work is not just something to get through and endure, but there is a sacred calling, something vital to our own flourishing and the betterment of the world and the advancement of the gospel. Work is a sacred task. Whatever it might be that you do, your work is a sacred task. God has made you for it, and he has placed you where you are for a reason and a purpose. Let's close in prayer, church. Would you stand with me? God, I admit for myself, I I very much feel the, like, umbrella in my drink kind of when it comes to work. I just like to put my feet up. I know people share that with me. I know people feel the other way. I know some people are very content in what they do and how they do it, which is awesome. Wherever we are on that scale, that spectrum of how we feel, would you help open our eyes to the right balance and the sacredness of the tasks that you've called us to? Whatever that work is, however dirty it is, however uh, air-conditioned it is, however hunched over a computer we are, or however sick of talking to difficult customers we are. Help us see the sacredness of the task of work because you have designed us for it. And when we do it, we live in the design that you have for us. Open our eyes, grow our hearts, set our feet forward in our mission, And God, would we find fulfillment and joy and purpose in all that it is you have called us to and put in front of us. Would you bless our work and our working this week? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, church. Great to be with you. Hope to see you at Corn Roast. Go sign up. We need plenty of help. God bless you as you go. Amen.